Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera. Baratapapa. En McDonald's Participantes por Tiempo Limitado. Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera. Baratapapa. En McDonald's Participantes por Tiempo Limitado. Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera. Baratapapa. En McDonald's Participantes por Tiempo Limitado. Really, we could do one or two things to end 2022. We could do a podcast where we go through all the clubs in the world of rugby league and decide what gradings we're going to give them. Uh, but that would be completely pointless. Uh, only would spark debate, and it's just clickbait, really. Or we can bring you some stuff that we've done, and he's on YouTube, but he's not yet a podcast. So uh, here we are. Uh, the 4020 Christmas selection box. It's like the uh, the cheese things you get in the shop, or the chocolate. A lot more expensive than they used to be, if you notice that. But this is free. Three bits of stuff we've done over the last couple of months, all wrapped up for you to fill up an hour or so of your time starting with J.R. Rickwood who's written a book called Cougar Mania which is all about disappointingly the Keithley Cougars no I'm only joking it's really good and here we are talking about it Johnny J.R. Rickwood author of Cougar Mania which I'm holding up here this this oh there we are this is it the cliche is a labor of love Johnny I mean sometimes I've thought about writing a book and then I give up quickly and I've look through the appendices and references at the back of this. And that's why I don't bother writing a book because you've put so much effort into this and I could never get anywhere near that. Why? Why have you written this? What, what, why have you done this? I think the key word, I, I was just, I, I was sat in my lounge one morning and I was working on a, I've written one fiction book and I was working on a fiction book. And I got to the point where I just thought, no, it's not working for me. So I thought, right, need to go back to storyboard. And I sat there and I thought, what is an incredible story? And for years, every time I thought of what's an incredible story, it was Cougar Mania. Just that story of kind of rags to riches with all the characters and all the swerves, the twists, the turns, you know, the, the proverbial goodies and baddies all thrown into the mix and you've got one hell of a story. Um, and I'm a bit, I was a bit like yourself. I thought, Oh, I don't know if I can, you know, I don't know if I'll be able to do this because I'll have to speak to a lot of people. And really that day I just kind of thought, well, surely somebody's written something. Surely there's already a book about Cougar Mania. And, and there was, there was a book uh, by a guy called Brian Lund and it was written in the mid nineties. Um, and it's just it's just here actually. I read it quite often, and it, Brian's book is really good. Um, but it's years old, and it kind of it didn't it kind of stopped around ninety seven. So I kind of thought, well, I need to tell this story. So that's why I started. Starting <laughs> and, and then couldn't finish because this is, as I say, this is a lot of work. I mean, how many words have we got in this? Four hundred and fifty odd pages. This, this is a hell of a piece of work. Yeah, hundred. I think it ended up around hundred and fifty odd thousand, maybe more. Can't remember. One seven five, something like that. 
I struggled. I struggled getting a dissertation. I had to get my wife to uh, type it up for me at the time. So there's no way I could do anything like this. But you are telling a story of something which it seems to be another one of those rugby league things that you know. I guess there could be a book written like this about Toronto. It, 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 a, a bright flash mm. that fizzled out, but is potentially coming back in some form or another with the the current run of Keasley back in the the championship, but. What's your connection with the club? Why why are you sat here talking about a book about the Keithley Cougars, which, for all intents and purposes, are a second, third division rugby league team? So I, I'm a product, really, of Cougar mania. So Cougars came to my school, because I, I grew up in Oxenhope in West Yorkshire, and they came to my school, um, I think I was around about seven or eight. It's in the book, but I can't remember the exact age. And uh, I met Andy Ayres and Joe Grimmer, and I, I was just completely, I fell in love with the whole concept of Cougar Mania, which was obviously geared very heavily towards people in my demographic. Um, and then I, I left Yorkshire when I was about 18. I went to Wales and I've stayed here ever since, really. And I kind of lost touch with with what was going on. And as you'll know, and as as you know, people who listen to the podcast will know, the they, Cougars have had some really bad troubles over the years. And really until um, the O'Neills came back in, I'd not paid much attention to the club. Um, but then I just rediscovered Cougar Mania and all of its wonders. And I thought, this story, I've just got to tell it start to finish. <laughs> it's it's a great period of change across Ruby League, of course, in, in the mid-90s, the evolution of Super League, mergers, rebrands all over the place. But Keithley seem to have got there first with, with the Cougar name. And I know obviously other clubs have had names and such in the past, but they really got behind not just having a name attached like Huddersfield Barracudas, say, but actually getting yeah. behind it with the community work and, and getting involved with the kids and the, the future generations of supporters. Exactly. And I think that's what the key was, is like you said, there, there was the Huddersfield Barracudas. They'd been the raft of expansion teams in the 80s that had taken on names such, you know, like the Mansfield Marksman, et cetera. And really, everything that had come prior to them, um, I'm going to put the the Sheffield Eagles in one corner, really, aside from the other teams I'm talking about. But all those other clubs, they just provided the name change. They hadn't provided the culture change uh, and the kind of progression that Keithley was showing at the time. And I think that's what made them stand out, is they, they reformed not only the club top to bottom uh, and the culture, but also the town as well. Um, and they did, if you look at things that Gary Hetherington, Sheffield Eagles were doing as well, you know, they they were, there was one article that I read um, where basically somebody had written to all the clubs and asked them for, you know, they, they portrayed themselves as a, a fan moving to the area and they asked for a fixture list and uh, they asked for, you know, what's what merchandise do you sell and when your home games and directions, etc. And the only rugby league club that could provide them all of those information was was the Sheffield Eagles. So I think what Keithley did, in a, in a sense, is they really took that Americanized presentation of sport and the idea of integrating a club into the community, and that is what they progressed. It's strange because I've mentioned before, one of the things that got me in the, the mid-90s was ice hockey. Uh, and the adverts on the radio for the Sheffield Steelers and went to plenty of games, still follow them from afar these days. Don't get to as many games as I like to, but that's a costling and an everything else thing as everything else is these days. But they sold 
the uh what's it the old phrase they sell the sizzle rather than the steak so but once you got there you found that oh, actually this ice hockey is quite entertaining and and it's the same with rugby league in a sense isn't it hmm. you have to sell people on something more than just a game and it's not just a problem for Keithley in the late 80s, early 90s. This is a problem that's still going on today, it yeah. seems. It's still a problem we haven't solved. Exactly. And I think that rugby league is... Um, and I won't get into the kind of historic issues of league that I kind of discovered during the research of the book. Um, but one of the main is, is rugby league doesn't really know how to sell itself, um, as you all know. And the thing that Keithley did in the 90s is they looked outside of what the traditional ways of marketing were, which were non-existent, to be honest. And let's not forget that they were a third-tier side as they are now. They were the bottom of the barrel. They, you know, they'd finished bottom of the whole of the rugby league just a couple of years prior. Uh, and what they did is they looked at what was working elsewhere. They took a model, that Americanized model from the States, and they brought that to the UK. And, you know, we're talking about things like, you know, a jazzy shirt with sponsorships, re reaching out to communities, having cougar classrooms, you know, they were doing things like even even a failed attempt at launching their own cougar vision TV show with matches. Um, you know, they were doing things like that way before, not just, you know, the rugby league sides, but the football sides, the rugby union sides, they were really ahead of the game. And I think, as you said, with ice hockey, I mean, I was kind of brought into that glitz and glamour films like the Mighty Ducks in the 90s brought me into it. And as a kid, you, you would look at your sports teams and you wouldn't have any of that. And that's what Keithley provided. It, it's interesting, because as you say, from the doldrums of the, the mid to late 80s, where would Keithley have been without Cougar Mania, as, as daft a question as that is? Well, it's it's quite an interesting what if, really, um, because I, I had um, I had two interesting chats, one during the writing of the book and one afterwards. During the writing, I spoke to the, the chairman um, that kind of left just as the O'Neill regime sort of started with Smith and Spencer, uh, a guy called Colin Farrer. Um, and Colin actually came back with Neil Spencer and saved the club again in, uh, I, I believe it was 20, uh, I can't remember the date, um, but it's twice that Colin saved the club. Now, Colin is a very successful businessman, and I've gotten absolutely no kind of reservations that if Colin had been at the helm, Keithley would have teetered along as a club in existence for a number of years. But then we bring in something like Super League when all of this change is kind of forced on clubs and we see the impact of what happened to some sides then. And I think Keithley probably you know, without that backing that was required at the time, there probably wouldn't have been a Keithley club. We are now at this this stage again where we're going to have another shake-up. We're not quite sure what the gradings or criteria will be to be a grade A, grade B, grade C club mm. or whatever. Keithley are trying to position themselves. Well, <laughs> are they trying to position themselves? Just they, They're not big fans of what's going on at the moment. I think... So the... the to put in a nutshell what's happening at the moment, I think for people involved at Keefley um, and the supporters, there, there is a very big sense of deja vu in the sense of when I was writing this book, a lot of the things I was writing about then started to happen in real life uh, in regards to Cougars doing extremely well this season and then gaining promotion. There's some vast differences between what's being proposed now and what happened last time. That Obviously, we haven't got time to go into those. 
But I think that from Keithley's perspective, they are wholly and 100% correct in their assertion that merit of performance on the field of play should be one of the key, if not the only decision-making tool in who plays in the top division in a sport. But we have to also look at the position that we're in. And I think that is where it's become difficult for Keithley because they are on that huge trajectory. They have money, they have investors, they have sponsors that have joined them, similarly as what they have done back in 94, 95. Now, those sponsors in 94, 95 disappeared. As soon as the door was shut, they were gone. And I think the worry is that could potentially happen this time. That is why there's been such a pushback. Um, so there's the two the two points there. One, they don't believe that it's right in the ethos of the sport. And two, it could be extremely damaging for the club. But personally, you know, I'm not going to give all my views on what's happening here. There's not enough time. But I can completely 100% understand their frustration. And I do have a worry that we're going to be in a position where big decisions are going to have to be made in a short space of time again. And potentially we could really impact those those kind of smaller clubs. Keithley is a town. Uh, you know it far better than I do, because I think I've only been yeah. there a couple of times. How does it compare with the likes of, say, a St. Helens or a Castleford or a Witness, just picking three places out at random, Warrington or what at Rochdale? Yeah. Is, is it that much smaller than any of these other places, some of which are in Super League, some of which are not? Well, that, that was another interesting thing in my research is I, I did have a look at a number of the census graphs. And Keithley, without a doubt, is in the lower sort of lower third of the population of rugby league towns as it was back in um, sort of 95 when they made the decision. Uh, and, you know, Maurice Lindsay said to me, Keithley was a small town. They were too small. And if you do look at population, if you take somebody like at the time, if you take a London at whatever million and you take a Nottingham at whatever million, a Blackpool at whatever million, and you compare them, you know, in, in that kind of comparison of millions to thousands, Keithley and Castleford are roughly the same size. Wigan's not significantly bigger than Keithley. But the big thing that is kind of overlooked when looking at this is we look at the population of a town. Now, if you look at Keithley on a map and where it's positioned, it's more North Yorkshire heading up towards Cumbria. And a lot of the support at the, you know, in the 90s came from that area. So, so really, I think when we look at sizes of places, we do need, you know, it is important. But no, I wouldn't say it's significantly smaller than, you know, one of those towns. As you, as you mentioned, Maurice Lindsay, and I've got to find it in the in the book now. He, he does mention that you spoke to him. Uh, about Keithley, and, and he said it's a small town. It's yeah. not big enough to yeah. uh, not directly quote him. But obviously, <laughs> there were plenty of small towns involved in Super League or close to Super League at the time. So what, what was it like speaking to him? Because obviously you're one of the last people yeah. to interview him. And, and obviously he's a massively divisive figure. That's not a uh, understatement. What, what was he like to speak to? So I think, first of all, it was... A real privilege to speak to Morris because I've always wanted to ask him those questions. It was a very cathartic exercise and he didn't have to talk to me. He knew what I was writing about. He knew the questions would be difficult and obviously he was not in the best of health. So I really did appreciate the fact that he spoke to me. 
But that is something as a wider rugby league community that people do. We're a very, you know, if you ignore Twitter, we're a very nice, loving community. <laughs> but then again, I didn't really agree with a lot of the things Morris said, and they were pretty much a carbon copy of what he said between 95 and 2001 or whatever it was. Um, I think specifically, like when we're talking about a club being too small, yes, Keithley's smaller than Wigan. It is smaller than St. Helens. It's smaller than Huddersfield. You know, it's a small place. But then if you look at the, the kind of attendances and the potential at the time, I mean, really, if we start to kind of hamstring and pigeonhole and kind of take clubs and put them like that, what I was sort of trying to explain during our conversation is that we're kind of creating, you know, our own kind of, basically we're telling the clubs what their destiny are and not allowing them to achieve what they could achieve. But the thing that I did kind of get into a slight bit of confusion with, with Morris was that he kept referring to the criteria for Super League. Now, as far as I could find in all my research, there wasn't any written criteria for that first Super League. It was just what had been kind of thought of in Morris's head and communicated by Morris and Sir Rodney. But the interview with, with, with Morris was, was really good. It was great, but he was, well, it would probably would have been easier for me to get into Buckingham Palace. He was that guarded <laughs> is all I would say. Um, but he did, he did agree to speak to me again. And there were plans that I would call him up and speak to him when the book was finished, but obviously he did pass away. So that didn't happen. I, I do like the fact that he, straight away after you, uh, in, uh, do your introduction to you straight straight on the front foot he's he's not he's not holding back he's gonna stop nope. he's, he's putting his agenda on the on the table this is what i'm thinking this is what i'm saying you're not going to dissuade yeah. me from this it's brilliant absolutely brilliant yeah if we'd have been in a fight that would have been a jab straight away <laughs> definitely but as as i have said on the podcast before sometimes you need a leader like that and obviously it wasn't to the uh, benefit of keithley but maybe well someone say to the detriment of the sport or not, it's, it's up to people to decide on his legacy, isn't it? And that will be discussed for many, many years. It, it's a shame that there's not a book about him. He didn't write his book before yeah. uh, he passed away because it would have been fascinating to really get into his brain. Um, Bull mania. Yeah. What, what, a, what an interesting concept. And it, it does seem that this story is, I'll, I'll use a Wakefield comparison. I think we're all as Wakefield fans, stuck in 1968, despite the fact that the week after that kick, we won the championship for the second straight season. But we can't get past that moment in time. Is there a danger that Keithley fans can't get past this moment? You, you've mentioned the current situation mm. and, and going back to 94, 95, 96. Is, is there, does there need to be some kind of catharsis that gets everyone past this and moves forward? Or can that even be done? I mean, first of all, I don't think that... I don't think at the moment... I think Keithley would very happily go along with just being Keithley. But what kind of keeps happening is... I want to say keeps happening. That, that sounds like it happens every week. It doesn't. But what does seem to happen is there are these major decisions that are made, such as the removal of academies, etc., um, and... This season, obviously, um, the the potential restructuring via grading uh, by IMG, uh, and these things happen to Keithley when they seem to be on a quite an upward traje trajectory. Now, that is purely coincidence. There is no conspiracy, obviously. 
Um, but yes, there, there, there is, there is a possibility that that does become Keithley's, you know, that, that becomes the part in their history that they can't get past because it's something that they achieved. It's something that was real. It was something that was felt, it was tasted and it was taken away. And I think for a number of the clubs that were kind of in the same boat at the same time, they, they got that back, you know, witness got it back. Um, Wakefield got it back, Salford got it back, et cetera, et cetera. But Keithley and Batley, you know, they were two of the clubs that didn't get it back. But Keithley were the ones that carried on that legal fight for 12 months or something like that, spent a lot of money. It ruined lives, that decision for people involved at Keithley. So it really is that last great, that is the top of the iceberg at the moment. Everything since then has gone down. There's been peaks up, peaks up, but that is the last height. And really, there's not been anything since as significantly large enough to kind of erase that. Um, and Bull Mania, that, I mean, that's that's a completely different kettle of fish on top of that. <laughs> I, I, I'm very much of the opinion that we can't yeah. keep thinking that the current Bradford Bulls, Rugby League Football Club Limited or whatever they're called, yeah. are any relation to what happened 20 25 years ago because they are not they are they're not getting 25,000 people they're not selling out games not doing this and no. that and they're having to rebuild like many other clubs have done in the past and and it seems that you know it's mentioned you know that they can't ha you can't have two two teams in the Bradford metropolitan district it's right in fact we've got two teams in the hall and you know yeah. if you're in Castleford are next door to each other and seemingly coexist why why can't a Keithley and a Bradford coexist in the same division there's no reason why they can't is there they're completely different no. entities they support each other i mean i, I used to go watch bradford uh, play at Oddsall. um prior to the announcement of super league i would say that the relationship between the majority of bradford northern fans and cougars fans was quite good yes there was the normal rivalry but there wasn't this kind of bitter hatred that followed. You know, you've got people like Peter Rowe, who, you know, he was a great player for Bradford, coached Keithley and played for them. Peter Rowe is beloved by both sets of players, you know, people such as Joe Phillips with the trophy. There's enough room for a Keithley and a Bradford. The issue that happened with Keithley and Bradford is that there was an overriding feeling that what they had created at Keithley and the vibe they had was trying to be well. The, and th this isn't my this isn't my opinion. Just first of all, the majority of the feeling was that the, that all of that had been lifted and put in Bradford for the benefit of Bradford and Super League. Now, elements of that are completely false, but there is an element that is true, in the sense of it is absolutely one hundred percent, you know, fair and accurate to assume that something happening, you know, 20 minutes down the road is not going to go unnoticed and other clubs that look at it are going to try and replicate it. And that's what Bradford did in bringing in someone like Peter Deakin, who put his own spin on it. But I think the main issue was that what Bradford had in Super League, which was fantastic, it was Cougar Mania on steroids. There was a feeling that if Keithley had had the money that was thrown behind that, by not only the RFL, Super League and Sky, of course, in regards to the production, et cetera, et cetera, the way it was hyped up on Sky TV. If they'd have had that, you know, perhaps they could have increased their audiences by a percentile amount such as Bradford did. 
which is fair to say that 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 could have happened. Whether it could have got to the level of Bradford of twenty thousand whatever fans, you know, that's up for debate. That's that's down to history. But that I think that's where the main issue of that bone of content came from. I think you've hit on something with the the change of attitude in terms of it was, and I hate the word, but the, the kind of banter you would have between you and your rival fans in the olden days. And then when Super League came in and it wasn't necessarily what your team did on the pitch. If your team loses, then you can blame the referee or blame, you know, the other team cheating or whatever. But when Super yeah. League came in, you can now, you've got even more, uh, monsters to blame such as Moise Lindsay the Rugby Football League Rupert Murdoch and whoever for the your teams and clubs failings whether they're right or not and that spills out onto well it used to be just the terraces but now we're as you mentioned Twitter and social media and yeah. forums or whatever and and there is that that, that bitter edge which <laughs> there is unfortunately the potential for that to come back in spades with whatever happens with this current uh grading system I think so I think if you look at literally a day after the announcement um there was a number of um commentators journalists content producers for rugby league who immediately sat down and had some easy content to do which was interesting watching it's interesting watching to be like right what does richard rank how would you rank the teams but what it did is it immediately also created a division and we were no longer looking at what's best for rugby league we were looking at what's best for Leeds, what's best for Keithley, what's best for Hunslet, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that also opens up another argument of, well, who's better, Leeds, Keithley or Hunslet? Well, I can tell you who's better. Leeds are the best. Why? Because they finished higher up in the league structure. Oh, okay. But what we're introducing as well is that secondary element that fans don't understand on a, on a general kind of level. And Nigel Wood told me this himself when I spoke to him, is that the things that they're grading on, that go on in the background, you know, you may have a nice shiny house from the outside, but it may be absolute mess inside. And that's what clubs are going to be graded on. And it immediately opens up all this discussion, all of these different points of view over which is best. And obviously the traditional way of deciding which is the best is to pick up a ball and play on a field. But that's not the way we're going again. So, of course, it's going to open up so much debate. I mean, without mentioning any teams at all it does seem that there are some teams in Super League at the moment who I'm not saying I throw in this season in but they certainly um the way they've prepared would suggest that they're not necessarily worried about finishing bottom of the pile were that to happen but I've got yeah. no idea what's going to happen next year and uh, you know as I see you read these articles and people say well Leeds are top and Wigan and Hull FC or B and this they don't know no one has an absolute clue what's going to happen in the future no but what we're doing is what yeah. happened in the past, which is this strange thing we can try and learn from. Uh, I, I, it's an absolutely fascinating piece of work. And and as, as Phil mentions in the magazine in the review, this is going to be one of those books that people look back on and, and learn from and, and try to replicate for their clubs and whatever. But Keithley, in such a unique place and a unique time, having to rebuild with all going on around them, and still to be around today, as you say, there's been ups and downs and plenty of downs. Yeah. And although there's some people at the club don't like me, so that's good. Um, but, you know, I like Keithley better than Bradford. So, you know, you've got any favour in the BD postcode area. But they, they could be on the way back. They could be on the way back. But it's how they get back. And what is 
do clubs have a natural level? I don't know. No one has a clue what's going to happen next. Could Keithley say, you know, we know Warrington have got lots of investment in them. Should someone in Keithley win the Euro millions and yeah. have a hundred million pounds? Why can't Keithley be the next Warrington or whatever? There's there's no reason why any club outside of Super League couldn't be a Super League club or whatever they're going to rebrand it in the future just by dint of luck. Yeah, I mean, I think I think when it comes to, in my opinion, when it comes to rugby league, there's always going to be this this kind of this kind of conflict between an investor who's going to invest money into a club and a club that is owned and run by somebody who has invested themselves in the club. Historically, a lot of rugby clubs were, you know, were run by people that were, you know, former players. They were elected to a role. They were owned by, you, you know, the history of the clubs. And and if you look now, we do have a number of stadium, sorry, uh, teams owned by very wealthy owners who are playing out of, you know, stadiums that are, you know, muck stadiums, you could call them, or rec- soccer rented stadiums, etc. But they're doing, some of them are doing very well. Would I, as a Keithley fan, like to see somebody with multi-millions come in and invest in Cougars? No. Simply put, because I think that Keithley have got the right owners at the moment. I think the people that have the biggest love and heart for Keithley are the O'Neills, um, Mike Smith, Judith Smith, and everyone else that's involved in Keithley at the moment. I think they're the ones, and you can tell... Because Keefley, the success of Keefley always kind of coexists with having somebody at the helm of the club that the fans buy into. And the people of Keefley and the fans of Keefley will only buy into an owner if they can see they are giving their heart and soul to that club. And I think that's that's kind of where it weighs in. Now, I think Keefley naturally would have progressed towards, you know, the top half of the championship over the next couple of seasons if the level of investment that the O'Neills were putting in, et cetera, was, was the same. Um, would they have got to Super League? Who knows? Would I like that, to see them buy entry to Super League? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, almost going down the Batley route. I know we're running out of time. So Batley yeah. are, the, Batley are the, the best comparison of how to run things outside of Super League, I guess, uh, certainly in the last few seasons. Yeah, fantastic club. Um, comedy. I am told is tragedy plus time. Is there any comedy in the demise of Cougamania? Plenty. <laughs> um, the amount of, but basically, if you if you start reading, if you start reading the book, Joe, Joe Grimmer said to me that when I spoke to Joe Grimmer, he said, "I want your book to make me laugh, but I also want it to to give me a tear in my eye." And if it does both, then I'll shake your hand. You've done a good job, and I'd like to think it does that. Yeah. But yeah, there's plenty of um, OMG moments, as they would say in the book. Uh, having produced this, as you say, millions of words, uh, nothing like exaggeration. What, what are you going to do next? What's the, what's the next project? Or do you just like sleep now for about 20 years and just go and go? No more. Well, I I did have a break to to say hi to my uh, to my fiance and meet the rest of my family again and, you know, maybe see the dogs. But my break's coming, uh, break's at an end now. So um, I've started working on a book with uh, Phil Larder. So uh, that book is going to be written with the um, the coaching team from the 2003 World Cup. Um, so we're working on that currently. And really, their kind of side of the story, perspective, um, 
of what happened and how they got there has never come out. So um, not not one particularly for all the rugby league <laughs> listeners, uh, but that's what I'll be doing next. Um, and then the book after that might look a little bit similar to the one you're holding. That's a little hint. Possibly, possibly might continue the story of Keefley. Possibly. It's time well, personal. Yeah. Just um, just due to the fact of material that I've been handed on a plate <laughs> by IMG over the past couple of months. I mean, I do like how you stopped the league tables just before Wakefield actually did, uh, got good. So uh, thanks for that. That's, that's brilliant. Yeah, that um, was just for you. <laughs> uh, Johnny, it is, uh, it is some piece of work. Um, thank you thank for you. writing it because, it, you know, these stories need to be told. Thanks for joining us. Uh, have a, a successful book. Fingers crossed people will pick it up either pre or post Christmas now. Uh, have a great Christmas, uh, happy new year. And you know, we, we might come, get you on to talk about Phil Lala's book. Who knows? I mean, we probably won't, but you know, we'll, we'll put the invite out there anyway. <laughs> to bring me on to talk about the next uh, when, when Cougars get given a, a category A or F or whatever they get. <laughs> That'll do. We, we can come sh- shoot the proverbial on that. Um, yeah, that'll be a fun day. <laughs> Can't wait for Twitter that day. Think about it now. In all good bookshops, J.R. Rickwood's Cougar Mania. A very, very interesting read. Now, the week before, I turned up down at the home of Rugby League, Bellevue, which is uh, a bit of a building site at the minute. I can't believe it. You know, for years I've been going down there, 30 years now. And, you know, plenty of times it has been said, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and build a new stadium. They're actually doing it. Um, and I went there because they're launching a heritage thing because Wakefield are 150 years old next year. Not the city, that's that's way older. Wakefield Trinity, 150 years old. So I went down there to hear what they're going to do, which is lots of exciting things, which I'm sure we'll talk about over the next 12 months and beyond. But also I grabbed the chairman, John Minard. There's something about rugby league, John, and, and it's about the scarf. Yeah. I, I'm the same. I've got in the cupboard at home the first scarf I bought from the club shop here, whenever it was in 1992. Why? Why Wakefield Trinity? Why are you here? Why am I here? Uh, well, it's my it's my city. I mean, this is my scarf from the 1970s, the late 70s. We went to, this scarf went to Wembley with me in '79, um, and we're here this morning talking about the launch of the of the Heritage Year, the 150th anniversary. So I thought it was appropriate that I should uh, wear my wear my Heritage scarf. But why? Because it's where I'm from. It's uh, it's my city, and. Uh, you don't choose your team, your team chooses you. That's the old cliche, isn't it? But it's absolutely true, that's why. How important has the club been to you over the years and since uh, since the 1970s? Oh, crikey. Um, always there in the background. I mean, I grew up in Wakefield in the 70s, well, 60s and 70s, left in 81 to go away to university, having been to school here. So I used to follow the club at the latter part of that time. Um, and then I was away from Wakefield until probably about a year, two years ago. Um, living down south, making my career down south and, and around the world, but it was always there in the background, and I always, I always used to come back. Uh, certainly, when my parents were alive, in particular, but even after that, would come and sometimes do a 350 mile round trip on a Sunday to watch a game. You know, mad as that sounds, um, not every week, but maybe you know, I think there's not been a season where I haven't seen a game in all that time, but it might have been two or three. And clearly I would always follow them if they were down south at one of the many London grounds or in Essex or wherever we were playing down there. So, yeah, always kept in touch. 150 years of history. Mm. And your role, I guess, is to keep 
keep the club going right until there's another 150 years. I think that's exactly it. I think that's how Michael and I see it. You know, we very much see ourselves as the custodians of Wakefield, and we, you know, we, we happen to own shares. But actually, it's not about that. It's about being the custodians and handing it on to, to the next generation, whenever that happens. Um, yeah, and it's just remar- I'm re- just feel very fortunate and honoured to be the one of the people who was involved as we hit this particular milestone, as the people did at the 100th, I suspect, as well, and, and will do at the 200th. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great honour. As you say, 150 years of history and heritage. How important is it that the club celebrates that and, and moves forward with that heritage? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's that feeling of continuation, isn't it? It's, it's celebrating the past and bringing us to where we are today, but actually the excitement of the future. And I was saying this morning, it's... Um, we're standing in a, in a moment of real change for the game, potentially, and a real opportunity for the game to have come together and move forward following the uh, IMG proposals that are being debated at the moment. So there's a new era for the game of rugby league, and it's a new era for Wayfield Trinity as well. As we, The ground redevelopment, I, again, if you go back to 2018, uh, when I first got involved, um, the single thing that we needed to do more than anything else for all of the on-field um, trials and tribulations over the years, the thing we had to do was redevelop the ground or get a new ground that's redeveloped. We've landed on the idea of staying here at Bellevue. We've bought the freehold. We've secured the deal to, to start the redevelopment and do the, the lion's share of the redevelopment with the new east stand, the north terrace, the new pitch, the floodlights, the screen and the community hub, the building we're sitting in now, the redevelopment of that as well. So there's a lot going on, and it's just, um, yeah, it's a real moment. It's a moment in, in history, and it happens to be the 150th. We'd hoped to do it a couple of years earlier, but there was, there was a pandemic around, so we got a bit delayed. But, um, yeah, but we're doing it in the 150th year, which is really quite symbolic, I think. Well, as much as I've referred to this old ground as a bit of a working museum in the past, and, and had the opportunity to work here briefly, but it is great that the club are able to stay on the home soil where they've been for yeah, hundreds yeah. of years and, and now rebuild and, and rebuild a new Wakefield Trinity. Absolutely. I mean, you know, none of us were around at the time, but all I'm told is that if you look out on that piece of turf that we've just relayed, that's, that was just a piece of ground that was roped off in 1878. And they said, let's, let's you know, lay it out and start playing rugby here. And that's just amazing to think that it was just a piece of waste ground. Presumably it was grass and they, they just staked out, whether they put some posts up, I don't know, nobody knows really, but they started playing rugby here in, in 1878, we're told, and, and it's amazing to think it's the same piece of ground that we're still playing on now, uh, I, think that's, I just think that's fascinating. I do wonder what they would think about the club still existing. Yeah, I think they, what if they ever imagine it like, would last as long and, and are still no, going? Yeah, I, I don't suppose they thought about it particularly. I don't suppose you do when you start something. It's the excitement of the here and now, isn't it? But yeah, it is, it is an amazing thing. It's only we've got the privilege of being able to look back, really, I suppose. You mentioned IMG. How's the club fit in with whatever plans they have for the future of the game? Well, well we, we're positive about the plans and the idea of moving the game forward and you know things do need to change in the game. We're absolutely certain about that. I'm positive about this uh, idea of having criteria um, and achieving a grading and the, the, the concept, if you like, of if you're good enough, then you're in. You know, It's not about are you in the best 12 or the best 10 or the best 14. It's if you fulfil the standards that are required for the modern game, then you rightly deserve a place at the top table in the top tier. So I think that concept, uh, we're absolutely behind. Of course, what we're waiting for is everybody else's. Is what are those criteria? And then once we know what the criteria are, what are the benchmarks for a grade A and a grade B? Um, that's what we're eagerly waiting. But uh, you know, we're determined that we're going to be give it our absolute everything 
to achieve the grade A. But we don't know exactly what it is we've got to achieve yet. Um, we are surrounded by photos and pictures of mm. the great teams, the past great players, the past Hall of Famers, yep. trophies and such. How hard is it when you're in charge of a club to actually try and not chase dreams that are impossible? Unless <laughs> yeah, you spend money yeah. that doesn't exist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, but you can always have the dream and the ambition. I think, yes, you have to be, and I think this is what Michael has done so very, very well over the last ten years, and I'm, you know, really proud to be part of it with him. The idea that the most important thing is that we continue to exist, and we do it sensibly, and we do it within a budget, and we don't lose money. We always say we're not here to make money out of this club, but we're not here to lose money. And the idea is that the club needs to be sustainable. Um, and that's that's the that's the first thing. Once you've got over that, and you say the, the most important thing is that we have a club, and we still have a club, and we'll still have a club into the future. That's what we're determined to do. When you get over that, you say, well, then you start dreaming, and you say, well, you're in a competition, you want to win it. You go into every season thinking we'd like to win the grand final, and we'd like to win the cup. Those are the two competitions we're in. Why wouldn't you? Now, the realism is that that's quite difficult to do because there are some really good teams out there, some really good clubs, and you know, St. Helens have. Uh, uh, demonstrate over the last four years that they're, they're a great side and they take some beating but we did beat them last year and uh, you know we only lost on, on Golden Point when we were here at Bellevue as well so you know who knows what we can do what we can achieve other, other teams less fancied have got to finals and, and um, you know if you get to a final you've got a chance of winning it New facilities I mean we've seen plenty of artists in presence over the years but that's actually, it's actually going up they're actually, they're actually building that <laughs> yes it us. is we keep saying that and only, only people in Wakefield would understand the the, the incredulity in our voices when we say, look, they're actually building it, it's actually happening. Because we have had so many, and I, I go back 50 years following the club, I suppose. I always say, and I thought my first game was 50 years ago this coming March. Um, and we've seen so many false dawns about moving somewhere else, redeveloping here, backwards, forwards, but it is actually happening. There's actual steel coming out of the ground um, and, and around the place, and concrete to follow, and suddenly we'll, we'll have a redeveloped ground, or at least... Most of a read about ground. And you've invited new investment in the club, yeah. both from supporters and, and people with perhaps a bit bigger amount yeah. of uh, cash to uh, invest. Is that how important is that for the club going forward? That more money comes into the club, just it, in general. It, it's it's helpful, uh, but it's not a critical moment as far as the funding's concerned. I've said earlier, you know, the club's in a stable place. Um, Stable means you're kind of at a break-even place, you know, and that's where you're aiming to be. So if you're at break-even, you know, it's 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 finely tuned, isn't it? Um, the purpose of this uh, of this investment invitation round is probably twofold: one, to foster closer links with supporters and give our, some of our loyal supporters who are contributing five thousand, uh, five hundred, or a thousand pounds, a feeling of membership, you know, a closer feeling with the club. Um, you know, I go back to the years of the 1970s when it was a members' club, whatever that meant and however that worked. But I'm trying to foster that sort of thing with it, um, so these people feel close to the club. So that was number one, and that raises some money, but not, but not, you know, hundreds of thousands. We also thought we'd put it out there, say, if there are people out there with more money for whatever reason and whatever, uh, who would like to join us and do what we did and invest slightly more substantially in it, then we're open to uh, to those conversations. You know, this is not a closed shop as a club. Um, we're not looking to divest, but if more people want to join us and join in the fun that we're having, um, and it is great fun, it's just a real privilege and great fun running it, and it has its ups and downs, but um, it's a great ride. Then you know we're inviting people in, so it, it's a it's a kind of nice to have, but we're very serious about it. So after 150 years, how would you sum up where Wakefield Trinity Rugby League Football Club is today? 
I think we're on the threshold of a, of a new era, and that's because of the ground. Um, and we're in, you know, we're building a community stadium. We're putting down our roots firmly in the community of Wakefield. I think that's that's where we stand as one of the, you know, the landmarks of Wakefield and one of the iconic names in the city of Wakefield. And um, as we do every season, but particularly this season with a new young coach and a new exciting uh, team. Um, we're looking for success on the field as well and uh, that's, that's absolutely we, we don't lose sight of that as well, that's something we're looking for as well, but it's just a really exciting time 150 years old here's to the next 150 History was made earlier this year when three women were inducted into the Rugby League Hall of Fame for the very first time Lionesses, Brenda Dobeck uh, Lisa McIntosh and Sally Milburn joined us on Zoom to talk about their careers and going into the Hall of Fame and all that kind of fun stuff. It's very exciting 2022. As we know, the Rugby League World Cup is on. The Women's World Cup starts in a few weeks' time. The wheelchair one as well. The men's has already started. Uh, And in the middle of all this, we've got the Hall of Fame ceremony in which, for the first time, three women are going to be inducted. And thankfully, they're all here with us this evening, which is amazing. Uh, Lisa, Brenda, Sally, thank you very much for, for taking up your time. I, I'm I'm going to start with Brenda because she's in my top left-hand corner. Um, uh-huh. And it, and it's, it's, it's the worst question in the world to ask. I mean, why and how did you get involved in rugby league in the first place? Um, well, I used, I used to play handball and then um, I got the, um, the news of a taster session by um, an ex- Rugby Union guy, uh, he wanted to set up a women's a local team and he put a taster session on one night. And because I'd um, I'd always had a little bit of involvement in rugby league by, um, I've got three uh, brothers that played at a professional level, so I was always interested in rugby league and liked to go and watch them. So I went down to this taster session knowing full well that I would enjoy it. So I did go down and enjoy it and then I converted from playing handball to playing rugby league. And never look back. Uh, what's your story then, Sally? Yeah, I was about to say, I come from Cumbria. One of the things is quite a rugby league orientated uh, town village. Um, quite similar. My brother played um, for the local team. So I used to go watch him and um, they'd set up a, a local team and uh, they said, why don't you come down, give it a go? I didn't go for quite a few times and kept getting pestered. And then one of them came at my house and literally dragged me down there. And it pretty much went from there. That's where I started playing. Well, you dragged, you did get, uh, glad you did get dragged out then. Yeah, like I say, it was uh, a lot of good times. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thankful for that person for taking me there. Yeah. Did you need any uh, dragging, Lisa, or were you, uh, you know, full guns blazing into this whole rugby league nonsense? Um, I My first passion was football. I was really into my football from a young age. Um, and I played, I played over at Man United Ladies before, obviously, it was like it is today. But I had a knee injury when I was younger. And also, because there was not many clubs around when I was younger, there was a lot of travelling. So once I started working and stuff, it became quite difficult to be travelling to Manchester like three times a week. And then, like Brenda, there was a, something in the career regarding a taster, a rugby league taster session for women. Um, uh, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll probably quite enjoy that because I, I did any sport. I played hockey, played netball. So I went down and... From there, I was hooked um, and played rugby league ever since. I mean, when I was at school in the nineties, I think uh, I mean I, I played for the school team, but I was I was terrible. I think I just made up the numbers. But I think we only had in the year group, and that would have been about three hundred. One girl who everyone knew played rugby league. 
what was what was it like in your when you were starting, Lisa? How many uh, girls were interested in playing the game? Uh, when I obviously when I started, I was an adult. When I was at school, there wasn't any. In fact, nobody played rugby league uh, um, girl wise when I was at school. Couple played football. I played football with lads. But when I started, we probably had maybe two girls that came training with us, and that's because their dads were part of the male team. So they would come training but and we'd maybe give them a game. They're probably about 14-year-old at the time. And then we had quite a couple of 14-year-olds that we used to give a game and maybe put on the wing. But there wasn't anything in schools. There wasn't any any girls uh, playing with lads' teams um, in the local area I lived in. Um, so there wasn't there was nowhere for the any young girls to go play really. They just they had to play open age if or nothing. And it is amazing how things have changed, Brenda, in the time you know between you first become a rugby league baller and where we sit today, where the World Cup opener is set to have potentially ten thousand people there. Yeah, yeah, definitely massive step forward. Um, a lot of hard work's gone into into the game, promoting the game with the media coverage, the Super League teams taking on on women's teams, and it the, the promoted it really, really well, and and that's why it's it's at its level that it's at today. Was what was it like when you when you were first starting? And was it a struggle to find opponents or find teams, or how how did it all work back in the uh, back in the day? Oh, everything was a struggle. We could find a pitch, a club that would take us on board. Uh, we didn't have any supporters. We had to scrimp and scrape for kits. We had to borrow kits that were twice the size, you know, for the players. Um, yeah, it was a real real struggle, real real struggle. Well, that's one of the things, I guess, Sally, of all the things that haven't changed, obviously there isn't much money in, in rugby league in general, let alone the women's game, and still, we're still having to find money to uh, provide kits for uh, even the uh, semi well, not even semi-professional, but the teams linked to Super League teams, I should say. Yeah, one of the things, like I say, when, obviously, we played one of the things, we had no um, finance towards one of the things. I mean, especially with me coming from Cumbria, um, I was having to travel a good two and a half, three hours to get to trading and then the train, but it was all all self-funded, one of the things. But um, we did a lot of it because, for the love of the sport, basically, one of the things. Um, but, like like I say, one of the things, um, it, it was a struggle with... Um, Massive amounts of sponsorship and stuff like that. When the things we'd do anything, um, like I say, we'd beg and steal and borrow but to, to get kits and things. So, how, how do you go from your first steps into rugby league, Sally, to representing the country? How, how did that journey go? Um, like I say, I'd, I'd, I think I started playing when I was about 18, 19. Um, I, I was a bit like Lisa on there. We weren't allowed to play it in school. Like I say, we, we were only allowed to play hockey in that school. Rugby wasn't one of them sports. Um, and then, like I say, when they set up, we, we got into that. And then maybe I've been playing 12 months, two years, something like that. And they did uh, a, a trials day in Lee. And we all went down a lot with uh, other people as well. And we did a whole day session of trials. And um that that's that's where they they had a lot of people watching and um and that and they picked the squad from there and and then it went from there really. I mean, here's what it here's the the, the really stupid question: the, the the feeling when you first wear the nation's jersey, Lisa. What, what does that what did that mean to you? I mean, it was so proud, so proud. I mean, I mean, the, the when we toured, we played obviously some warm up games um before we went against um the sort of like the best of the rest. But once you got to Australia 
and you were stood there in that shirt with that national anthem, uh, just give you goosebumps, really. Um, and it was a really, really proud moment. Yeah, it's the one thing. I, I Obviously, I was at the World Cup game in Newcastle at the weekend, and you see the teams lining up, and, and it's difficult to really understand what it's like to represent your country if you, if you haven't done it, and and you all have. It, it must make you proud. And, and how do your family? How did your family feel about doing that? Oh, really, really proud. Um, I mean, my sisters. When when we had the World Cup in in England, it was difficult for family to support and come and watch when you were when you were in Australia and New Zealand. But then when you was we played in England and we were at Cass and we were at Dewsbury and and at Oral. Uh, family were there in the stands. Um, obviously, you've got this is family that followed you around um, Yorkshire and Lancashire in all weathers because obviously we played winter league. Uh, we did none of this summer rugby when we played. Uh, and they would be stood on touchline with the with the flasks of soup and and everything else that families used to bring and for all the players, not just you. And so it, it, a really proud moment, a really really proud moment for them all. So you'd have preferred to play in the summer then. In hindsight, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want I don't want you to come across as one of these bitter old people who say, "Oh, it's almost <laughs> better in my day." But now you said you know you'd rather play in the summer. That, that's yeah. there's the kind of honesty yeah. we like. I mean, there's nothing better than being hit sideways by hailstone at Hull. <laughs> and, and this is another one of those stupid questions. What kind of facilities did you have to put up with in the day? Not that everything's great these days, Brenda. Yeah, um, facilities were very, very poor. I mean, we we, um, we had so many bases when we when we first started. Um, we had. Um, I remember we, we were based down at Castleford Rugby Evening Ground. Um, we shared it with with the team down there. They um, they allowed us to use it for a season. And um, after after the game, we had to um, we had to not shower. We had to get in the bath. So we 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 bathed, but the referee had to get into the bath before we and in and out before we could get in and out. So that that's that was the standard of facilities back then and. Um, they were very, very poor, very poor. You, you've, I, I, it's almost like I want to say that the, with the bandwagon has started, as I mentioned, I, I jumped on the bandwagon a few years ago, but you're the people who, who built the bandwagon. Do you like Brenda being seen as someone who, you know, without the work that you and your, your teammates and those behind the scenes did, that Women's Rugby League was put on the path it is to today? Is that, is that, is that something that makes you feel proud as well? Oh, very proud. I mean, we um, back that back then we we did and and went through the process of, you know, sort of roughing it, having having to play the game, the the game that we all loved, and that's that's. I mean, Sally mentioned earlier that the only reason that we played the game or kept us in the game was for the passion of the game, and um, I hope that the girls that are playing now and playing in the World Cup appreciate, you know, what we had to go through for them to get to the level and get to, to play in the World Cup like they are. They're going to be in a couple of weeks' time and I do hope they appreciate, appreciate everything that we did for them. What, what's the weather like in uh, Cumbria? Did you have much hail to deal with there? Is, is that just a whole problem? <laughs> I know all the teams when they used to come up and the things um, they absolutely hate it coming to Cumbria it just seems to have their own it's home weather um, with the things I always remember uh, a team coming down from Hull and it, it was absolutely lashing it down with rain and that and they actually played with bin bags underneath the rugby kit so it, it was that cold with the things but it was um, 
it, it was it was fun. It was a laugh and the things, but uh, things we did back then. <laughs> I mean, what what parts of the the more the modern game? I say I say more modern. Is it not as if you played in the eighteen hundreds or anything? But what <laughs> what parts of the today's game would you like to have seen back when you were playing? You know, in terms, in terms of we got the women's super league now. What would you like back when you were playing on the pitch? Um, probably, um, like I say, to have a little bit more support from the um, the bodies and that with the things. Like I say, it wasn't um, that recognised when the things. Um, it, it we always we always got like the second best on things whenever we were trying to set up in areas and and the bids. Um, it, you know, it always had that little bit of mindset where you know women sort of shouldn't play rugby with the things. But like, like you say, it's uh, but I, I would like to. Um, I thought that we'd have had more um, support from the bodies and that lot, and, and like you say, be be affiliated like they are now with the Super League. I mean, Lisa, it's it's something that was an issue then, obviously, and and it's still an issue now. People will say women shouldn't play rugby league, and no matter what you say, they they're, they're going to stick to that uh, regardless, aren't they? I think you are going to have those those. I think it's I think it's get not as bad as it used to be. Um, and especially women's sport in general, to be fair, now is obviously more recognised and accepted um, by all sexes. Um, but you will always have that minority that will be saying that women should not play rugby. You will have fathers who don't want their daughters to play. Um, but I definitely think it's it's come on a long way since the time when I, when I played. I mean, we're, we're hoping now that... The uh, the young girls coming through, even for the, even the boys will see you know players for St Helens and Leeds and York and and whoever in the women's Super League and and, and idolise them. And you see girls now with with players' names on the back of their shirts in the women's Super League. Yeah. Who who were the players who you looked up to when you were starting out? Who who did you want to emulate? I mean, to be fair, I was one of the early ones, so it's um, I'm one of the probably in my team probably have started a little bit older. But the players that we played, obviously, with at the same time. I mean, obviously, Brett was always one that was was a player that was always recognised as one of the top players. Um, Sally as well. Sally as well. Whenever we went to Barrow, we had the players that we needed to make sure that we didn't allow them to play. Also, Shelley Land at Wakefield was one that, you, as, as a team, you would you would earmark to make sure, let's not let her play her game. So there was players like that who, were, who started at the same time. Because we start, we were obviously one of the first teams uh, players to play. It's really difficult to say pinpoint anybody that was, that came before us, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a a, a tough question to ask in in hindsight. Are there any players today you 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 see and you think, oh, I wish I would have been playing alongside them. Oh, I mean, we went to watch the game against, I think it was against France um, at Warrington a couple of months ago. And there's some, I mean, Amy Arcastle um, is run so well. He's a, tough, he's a tough player. I mean, Lewis, obviously Lewis is not playing anymore. But there's some really, really good young, fit athletes out there now. Um, and uh, yeah, I would have loved to have played against them and loved to give them a run for the money. Mm-hmm. Mentioning Lewis there, uh, Brenda, obviously going into the coaching ranks now. Lindsay Anfield yeah. as well, and uh, yeah. it's so many other Amanda Wilkinson at, at Barrow, of course. So many players now on the coaching staff at teams. It's good to see female coaches coaching female teams. 
that question to me, sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's great to see um, so so many uh, female coaches coming through the ranks. And um, and from what I've seen, you know, the, the very, very good coaches. I mean, the, there's some really good girls coming into the game and, and being coached by these these girls that I played alongside and I coached as well. Mm. So it's 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 great to see. It's great to see. And of course, Barrow Sally having a, a great season in the uh, the women's Super League two this year, and only narrowly missing out on promotion to the top top division of the women's Super League. Yeah, as I say, Barrow have got um, two teams now. Like I say, one of the Super League and the reserves um, team to to filter through to that. Um, they're doing absolutely fantastic. Um, great development going on in in the Barrow area. Um, like I say, with, with, with all the opportunities they've, they've got and the things I, I sometimes wish I was like 20 years younger where I could be playing with them, you, you know what I mean? It's um, but, but no, it's fantastic. Like I say, Amanda Wilkinson, she um, with the coach at Barrow, um, she's doing brilliant as a coach. Um, she actually played uh, for a short while when I played in Barrow, so she actually played for the, one of the original Barrow teams, so... No, it's great. Um, yeah, like I say, it's um, it, it's brilliant. Um, they're, they're doing fantastic. Yeah, um, I'd love to be able to play in that and you know, so get the crowds of that that they're doing because they are getting so much support at the moment. Where do you see the women's game going in the future? Because obviously, there's a lot of more attention on women's sport, as, as Lisa has mentioned. But where do you see women's rugby league going in the future? Um, well, well, like you say, with, with the things like there's there's so much development going on in the Australia and, and New Zealand and that with the things I can see, um, the like the, certainly the Super League going forward and that I know they get expenses and things like that, but I can see them in the future doing it as a full time job with the things and uh, you, you know like full time career, which which is great. Obviously, Lisa, as I say, people get paid in the NRLW these days, but. Would you like to have gone and played in Australia club-wise in, in this era? Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, obviously, we toured out there. I love the facilities. I love the temperature. Um, even when we toured out there, obviously, we, we Brisbane Broncos hosted us um, all those years ago. And the facilities that, that, that they've got, because obviously, Rugby League um, in Australia is their number one sport. Um, so there are lots and lots of facilities out there, but because of the con the weather the weather conditions, uh, you there is a lot of fields where you don't you don't need floodlights, you don't need you can you can play every week. Your pitches aren't going to be waterlogged; they're not going to be boggy. Um, and I would I just would have really enjoyed playing out there, and the, and the lifestyle would have would have suited me. I mean, this World Cup might it might be a short window for some of the uh, younger English players to get really on the red. Not that they won't know about them already, but really on the radar of the uh, the clubs in the NRLW. Oddly, I mean, all you've got to do with football now, where you've got English players playing at Barcelona and and uh, Paris Saint Germain, and so no reason why the British players, English players, can't be going out there and playing for Sydney and and Brisbane and the women's teams out there. And I think it's brilliant. Just hope that the World Cup is it continues after the World Cup and all this publicity that they're getting at the World Cup continues because rugby league in England we know is not the the main priority sport in England and that's not just for women that's for male so I hope after this World Cup all this publicity that they're getting um, that it continues because um, it needs to continue for it to move forward and for us to be able to compete with Australia and New Zealand. 
and, and the way that they've brought their women forward, the, the, the sort of like publicity and the, the funding that they're getting needs to continue for us to, for us to improve. The, the Rugby League Hall of Fame, Brenda, is the elites of the elites. I think, is it 23, 26 men in there at the moment? And you three are the first women ever into the Hall of Fame. How did you find out about it? And, and <laughs> what was your first reaction? Uh, well, I first found about, about I was out at work. I, um, I worked for Royal Mail, so I'm a post to. So I was out delivering my mail and I got a phone call and um, it was from Julie Lee. And she said to me, I sat down and I said, why should I be? I said, I'm at work. Should I be sat down? She went, well, she went, well, yes. Yeah. I just want to give you the news that you've been, um, you're going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I was absolutely gobsmacked. I, I, I couldn't believe what she was saying to me. Uh, but obviously it was fantastic news. Um, and yeah, it's it's quite surreal. Um, it's, it's, I'm finding it hard for it to sink in that we're going to be actually, the three of us are going to be actually alongside um, so many famous names in, in the Hall of Fame. It's just absolutely unbelievable. And this, of course, is is only the beginning, Sally. Again, how did you find out about it? And what, what were your first reactions to the news? Quite similar to Brenda, really, with the things I was actually at work at the, the time and um, I'd, I'd missed a call and, and got an answer for message and that was off Julia Lee and it was to give her a ring back. So um, I rang about when I, when I had a break and um, and she was like, um, you know, pretty pretty similar with the things. Um, I, I just want to let you know that you've made it into the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, what were the things I was I was totally gobsmacked by it were the things um I, I didn't expect it um it, it's brilliant you know fantastic were the things but it's um but but yeah I'm over the moon with it. it it's good and like like Brenda says there were the things it's um sitting alongside the men's hall of fame and, and us three will be in there and, and and that lets any um future Super League England player and that um, aspire to and they can come and sit alongside, which is it's great. It's so fantastic. So I'm, I'm guessing, Lisa, you missed a call as well and you had to ring someone back. <laughs> is your story different? Oh, slightly. I was, so I, was, no, I was driving um, when Julia rang me. And, and like me always, I'm nosy what who else has got in. <laughs> so... so um, but it was, I mean, it was a shock because we have, we played, we played, obviously I haven't played rugby for probably 20 years, um, maybe not that long. So you, you, you don't think for one minute that you're going to get a phone call after reaching after so many years to say that you'd been recognised for the rugby that you played 15, 20 years ago. So it were, I were a little bit shocked. Like Brenda said, it were, it were a bit surreal. Um, but then gradually, obviously, as we're getting um, people contacting us and then there's, there's press releases, it starts to sink in and, and it's like, wow, this is this is brilliant. Um, and we're going to be we're going to be it's, I mean, it, and it's quite daunting, really, because we are going to be up there with your Ellery Anleys and all those sorts of players like that um, in all of fame. And it's and we're going to be the first. So even when we're not here, we're still going to be up there mm -hmm. in the Hall of Fame. Um, which is, is is amazing, really. It's amazing, and this right. is something that we didn't, we never expected anything like this. We played as rugby because we really enjoyed it and we loved it. Um, and the recognition that we're getting now is 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 brilliant. Yeah, unless you've got a massive ego, Brenda, which I'm assuming you don't have. You you don't go into anything, whether it's singing or acting or playing rugby league, expecting to one day be elevated to the the very highest level of achievement. 
No, absolutely not. I mean, it's like Lisa's just said, I just played it because because I absolutely loved and I was so passionate about the game. Um, that was enough for me, just going out there and being able to play. So to get this recognition is just, it, it, it's amazing. Uh, Abigail, our friend who is a, a nine-year-old, I think she's nine, she plays for Limehouse Lions near Rochdale, big Rochdale fan. Um, what what would be your advice to her and, and and girls of her age who are thinking about playing rugby league from your own experience, Brenda, and, and from what you've seen going on in the in the uh, current day? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if the young girl is is connected to a club at the moment, and if 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 she's not, then then find find a, lo a local club because um, she would she'll be able to probably play a mixed rugby at this this time, even if there's not um, a junior girls about this, she'll be able to play mixed rugby um, up to probably I think the age of eleven or twelve, so she will get a lot of experience through that. Um, and just if she's passionate enough about just just about the game, just follow her dreams and this. There's the you know the whole world ahead of her, um, and the proving now that you know the pathway to, to play for your countries is there, you know to follow, if that's what she's um, she's passionate about, and if if that's a dream, just just follow her dreams. What what would your advice be, Sally? Yes, uh, quite similar to Brad, really, with, with the things, um, you know, follow our dreams with the things like I say, um, if we didn't hadn't stuck at it and and. Um, done our best on, on the bits we wouldn't have achieved what we have today but um like work hard play hard in, enjoy it and, and try your best and um that that's that's all you can do and that, that, i guess that's the advice for everyone lisa isn't it if, if you want if you want to play rugby league, go and go and enjoy yourself because that's what it's all about yeah and and it is and it and it, it's not about winning trophies it's not even about getting in all of fame At the end of the day rugby league for me when we played was having that friendship that that sort of like having a, a togetherness everybody having the same goal but not only that the the fitness levels um enjoying getting yourself fit keeping healthy but not only physically healthy but obviously especially in this day and age keeping mentally healthy and to have a theme where a group of girls are getting together and experience playing sport together, you can't ask for anything better. You can't ask for anything better. And if from that you get to play for England or you get to go play in the NRL, then that's brilliant. But the most important thing is, is just enjoy your time. Enjoy whatever level you play at. Enjoy it and make some fantastic memories and some fantastic friends. It's obviously the world has changed completely since you, you all stopped playing and, and women's rugby league is, is a much bigger, higher profile these days. How much would you have swapped your experiences back then, Brenda, for having a go in this era? Oh, um, I would love to be able to play in this era. I mean, um, the the competition is is much bigger. Um, the expectations are higher. You know, the support is there. The the media is there. Um, and I I played in a couple of World Cups, but. To be able to play in this one, in this day and age, in your own country, with the support that you get, you know, um, I do believe all the players are getting paid to play, which is a massive step forward. I would absolutely love to play in this day and age. I mean, as much as I can say, Sally, you, you don't expect to enter the Hall of Fame and things like that. Did you expect you'd see England playing Brazil in the World Cup? 
<laughs> no, when it is like that, like, say, uh, like when we did our World Cup in 2003, it was the, um, it, 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 like you say, it was mainly the Pacific Islands that came, but um, Brazil, Jamaica, when the things, why not? Like I say, it's, it, it's, it's a massive development and it, it is good for the sport. Um, it's brilliant. So basically, uh, you, you all had great careers, but you'd all give it, up, you'd all swap it for summer rugby. That's that's what that's what I'm that's what I'm like. <laughs> Obviously, you had lots of great achievements. Forget the money and everything, but the, the fact that you could play in this in the warm. And believe me, I've been to Wakefield in in February, and it's not warm there either. Again, <laughs> it, it, it's it, it's an amazing journey you've all had it's an amazing story and and obviously the hall of fame is going to be the the icing on the cake so to speak but what happened what happens next what what happens next for women's rugby league in this country and how can we use your experiences to improve things for the future lisa i think our experience is, is around funding making sure that the game gets support financially making sure the game gets support with physios, training facilities, um, and publicity. Um, and that seems to be happening. Um, and for it to carry on growing, I think financially is a massive thing um, for the women. And, and, to be, and to be bringing it, I mean, they, it's, they take it into schools now, but I think there needs to be more development with the young teams. Um, and it, to be natural, like you see on, on a park on a Saturday or a Sunday, how many junior boys teams there are. And eventually, it'd be nice to be able to say the same about the girls, that, there's, that the same amount of girls can be playing as what, they, what your lads are playing. And they have similar pathways, and that means through the coaching, if they, if they, or even through the, the development of wanting to become coaches. Um, and I think it's important that financially that the, girl, the game needs the support. What do you think about the Australians playing only seventy minutes? Every time I speak to any of the current players, they 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 all they all say, "Well, you know, would you like to play seventy minutes yourself with the extra ten minutes to rest?" And they go, "No, we would not do that." No, not a chance. I can remember when we first started playing, and I think I think I remember this. We used to play. We started playing nine aside, and I think we used to play nine aside for thirty minutes, and then I think that went to eleven aside to for to forty minutes. So we'd even have less players and still we'd, we'd, we'd want to play longer. <laughs> I'd feel robbed if I only played minutes. <laughs> no concessions, no concessions. I mean, we're, we're all hoping that this extra 10 minutes of uh, play we've had all season in Women's Super League helps us against the Australians because we'll, we'll need all the help. Um, ladies, thank you very much for your time. Um, congratulations on being the first ever Women's Hall of Famers. I hope you have a great night at the Hall of Fame dinner. I hope you enjoy the World Cup and and hopefully we can tell uh, you can tell your stories going forward and and future generations of players are inspired by your careers and and where you've ended up. But again, thank you very much for your time this evening. So that's it. Um, that is the end of this selection box of stuff. I hope you've enjoyed it. Some interesting stories told. Hopefully the questions weren't too bad. Uh, join us in twenty twenty three. Although there will be some stuff before that, I think, if I can get my brain into gear to edit it before the end of 2022. If not, join us in 2023 for more Rugby League here on the 4020 exciting podcast and YouTube channel, which is adjacent to the magazine, which is also out and is better than this. I mean, I write in it, but, you know, it's much better than this. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hay dos cosas que son absolutamente ciertas. Abuelita te ama y nunca diría que no a McDonald's. Date un gusto con un Grandma McFlurry en tu orden hoy. Es lo que abuela quisiera. 
Barata, papa. En McDonald's Participantes por Tiempo Limitado.